Good evening to you. You know, as we look at, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, but as we look at these kind of, I don't know, milestones of years or 20 years or 25 years or 10 or 30 or those kinds of things, I think that they are good to I'll get you by it. If you don't have a Bible here tonight, we're going to go through the Bible tonight and you, you'll need one. So these guys have one for you. Just get their attention. And they'll get one into your hands. I didn't want them doing this for 10 minutes or something, you know. <laughs> but tonight I would like to just say in terms of the 25 years, um, just to say it publicly and to be able to say it in alignment with your heart, to just give thanks for God's grace. I remember Gail Irwin speaking years ago and uh, uh, much earlier in his Christian life where there was apparently a television show that was on at the time and they would have the fastest growing church in the United States on each week or something like that. And um, so they had this guy come on there and he's pastor of the fastest growing church for that month or that year or that week or whatever. And the guy asked him, he said, what do you attribute all of this growth to? And Gail said to himself, if he has any other answer than the grace of God, it's over. And and Gail said, unfortunately, he did have another answer other than the grace of God. And within a year's time, the church was a shell of its former self. So we give the Lord great thanks for his grace toward us at Calvary Chapel Modesto. Also want to give him praise and give him thanks for his unfailing faithfulness. He is unbelievably, indescribably faithful. And uh, so we thank him so much for that. And then sometimes people will say something kind about the church. And one of the things I'll always say is the Lord honors his word. He honors his word. And uh, he has done that for 25 years. And we're glad to be able to teach his word, worship together, be a church family. And we're thankful for how he gives people a hunger for his word, first of all. And then a, a desire to learn it. And then... In, in his grace to bring forth some teaching that will satisfy that hunger. So the beauty of his word. I'd like to also just say one other thing. I'm grateful to you and to God, of course, supremely and all of these things. But thankful for your love for the Lord, your hunger for the things of the Lord, what you bring individually to this church family and so many who have gone all around the world through the years from this place thankful for the part that you take. Sometimes you just think, well, I just come. You don't know. It's a lot bigger than that, how God uses you and how your presence and what it means to people and then your service to the Lord. So I just want to say thank you to you for your love for the Lord and your service to the Lord and making this church family, this church body uh, what it is. Well, let's turn now to First Kings chapter 12 this evening in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. This one arm thing is funny. You realize he gave us two of them for reasons beyond symmetry. 
they really are both handy. We pick things up in chapter 12, verse 25, and we remember that last week as we looked at things, uh, a very, very uh, pivotal, important chapter, and really in the entire Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter uh, 12, because it was at that point that because of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon's harsh answer, really very, very rude treatment of the children of Israel who were wanting some tax relief and some labor relief. And because he was going to try and be the tough guy instead of being the servant, he really forced them to rebel against him. And at that point in time, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And that's going to characterize uh, the description of Israel all the way through the rest of the, the Old Testament here. So important to recognize that. And so now Jeroboam, man by the name of Jeroboam, that God had called to become the leader of the northern kingdom of Israel. The passage begins to focus in on him very much here in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim. He made that the initial capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he dwelt there, and he also went out from there, and he built a city by the name of Penuel. And Penuel was on the east side of uh, the, the Jordan River, and apparently he built that as a fortified city in order to protect uh, the eastern side of the northern kingdom of Israel from attack uh, from the Gileadites. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now he's the king, now the kingdom may return, to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He makes a terrible mistake here. And it's a common mistake whether you're a king or whether we're not a king. And he, what he allows to have happen in his heart is he's gripped by fear. And he's going to start making decisions on the basis of fear. And what he's going to do out of fear right now, and the decision making that he's going to make, it is, it is going to affect God's people in the nation of Israel all the way until they are taken captive by the Assyrians. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. There's a fear that's good. A fear of God is a good fear. But the fear of man, if it becomes the dominant influence in my life over the fear of God, and that begins to dictate my actions, that's almost always going to lead us into uh, wrong decisions. So here's what's going on in this mind. God has made him the king of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel. And he thinks to himself, but wait a second. Three times a year, God has set up in the law that every Jew is to return to Jerusalem in order to uh, keep the feasts of uh, Passover and of Pentecost and of tabernacles where the temple is there in Jerusalem. And so all of these people that I rule up in the north three times a year, they're going to go to the south and pretty soon they're going to get homesick for Jerusalem, homesick for Rehoboam, the king down there. And they're going to want to bring the nation back together again. And they'll go even further than that. They'll assassinate me in order to accomplish it. So this is what's gripped his heart. Fear as a leader. He's afraid 
he's going to lose numbers. He's afraid that he's going to lose people in, in what God has called him to do. And so that begins to determine his, his decision making here. What he ought to have done, and there isn't a single person that serves the Lord that isn't uh, plagued by this on some level. What they call it in terms of pastors is where there's that counting of what they call. It's it's really kind of irreverent, but it's the way that it is. Uh, The counting of nickels and noses. And then that worry that people are going to go from this church to that church. And if this and this and then all kinds of crazy ideas get introduced into churches out of a fear that people are going to leave and go someplace else. When at a time like that, in terms of fear, and it doesn't matter whether I'm teaching the men's Bible study or the women's Bible study or a home fellowship or whatever I'm doing, this is something that's common to us from Adam and Eve. At a time in which that kind of fear grips us in our service to the Lord, what we've got to do is just step back and say, wait a second. God has called me to do this. And if I don't know that God has called me, then I got bigger problems than people coming or going. But if I have the assurance that God has called me to do what I'm going to do, then what people do is unimportant supremely. What we're called to do is to be faithful to what God has called us to do. It is his responsibility to then touch people's hearts to see whether they're going to be a part of our service to the Lord or not. So he's driven by fear here now. The church is getting smaller. It could split. It could all fall apart and uh, or however it applies to your life. And so this is the panic that he's in. And therefore, the king, this is the solution that he brings out of it. The king asked advice about what to do. And apparently this was the advice that he got. He made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I mean, here you are, you got to travel all that way. So he's got it. This is how he sells this thing. It's idolatry. It's a whole man-made religious system. How he sells it to the people is on the basis of convenience. Uh, forget about this. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. Forget about that kind of commitment. Doesn't matter what kind of hardship we endure. We're going to walk with God. We're going to serve God for him. He sells it on the fact that, hey, I've set up a religious system that makes it really easy for you. And I get very uneasy about anything that's associated with the God of the Bible then in an unhealthy way, attempts to take away any kind of self-sacrifice that is required in a walk with the Lord. So he's, he's making one mistake after another here. So he says, listen, this is too much for you. I've developed a religion that's a lot more convenient than that, that Jerusalem thing down there. And so he introduced these two calves of gold by saying, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Uh, I, I don't think so. But they've, they've. How well did this go for Aaron when he made the golden calf out in the wilderness there? This is a terrible decision to make. Now, Pete, we look at this and we say, how in the world could these people 
follow, I mean, believe that these two golden calves are their gods and brought them out of Israel. They end up doing it. Now, some people believe that what the calves represented in the ancient world was that the, the, you didn't worship the calves or the animals that were a part of the altar in terms of, of statuary and that kind of thing, but uh, you worship the God that rode on the back of these calves. Now, that's a conjecture there. We don't really know what, what is, uh, what's going on. I think it's a little alarming that the worship, there was a worship of the calf god that was a part of Egypt at that time. And remember, Jeroboam spent a significant period of time in Egypt when he was following Solomon. So it seems like he's taking this whole Egyptian, Egypt's a picture of the world, bringing the things of the world in and into the worship of the Lord and then selling it uh, on the people. But the people, they buy it hook, line and sinker. They like the idea of it. We do know that there was a group of people in Second Chronicles, we'll find out, that did rebel against it. The priests and the Levites who were up in the north, when they saw Jeroboam un unveil this man-made religious system that he came up with, they just fled the northern kingdom of Israel and headed to Jerusalem in mass. Not all of them, but most of them headed out. They recognized this was uh, obviously terrible, terrible uh, idolatry. And so he set one of them up in Bethel, which was the largest major city in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, and the other he put in Dan, which is one of the cities that we go to on a trip to Israel. It's in the very furthest north part of Israel, right where the borders of Lebanon, Israel, and Syria come together. And it's interesting, the altar is uh, still there, intact, uncovered. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, you're going back 3,000 years in history when you stand there and you, you look at it. So this is where he set those things up, and this became a sin for the people. Uh, a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Now remember, God had come to uh, Jeroboam, and uh, by the prophet Ahijah, who had said to him, "Listen, I am rejecting Solomon and his lineage is is king in part, and I'm going to give you ten of the twelve tribes to rule over as king." Because here are Solomon's sins. Number one, he is causing my people to disobey me, disobey my word and my commandments. And number two, he's leading them into idolatry. And here is Jeroboam who knows full well why Solomon has been rejected by God and he repeats the very same sins, as if God had not spoken to him at all. Something crazy about power that you, you get in there, God puts you in that position, you have it now, and then you just throw off all of these warnings that like they don't matter anymore. So I don't know anything about uh, power, but I see enough of it in uh, around the world and all that it seems to be very, very seductive. And so. He established this religious system uh, based upon idolatry, and then he begins to devise an entire uh, 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 religious system, again, of his own making. He made shrines on the high places. So if you couldn't get to Dan or Bethel, then you could go to one of these uh, high hills in various areas of the land, 
and uh, you could offer to uh, God there and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. God had declared that the priests were to come from the sons of Levi. So he's just pulling anybody and everybody in and making priests out of them. And Jeroboam then ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month that was kind of like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. And he so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So what he did there is in the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, on the seventh month, uh, in the 15th day of the year, right around that time of the fall, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. So you had the Day of Atonement, and right after the Day of Atonement was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what, saw, what uh, Jeroboam does here is he creates his own feast a month after the Feast of Tabernacles in the south, And the whole idea is so that people will look at going down there, as God's word said, say, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, We have a a feast up here that's more convenient to get to uh, that. I mean, they probably had laser shows and fireworks and who knows what. He makes this thing like a big deal. You're going to go down there and go to that nothing kind of thing. And here we have. You know, all the bells and whistles associated with uh, the worship of these calves. And so he, he, he took and just kind of in terms of human means, he made this big event outshine what was happening down there on a physical carnal level so that people wouldn't go down there. And here's the big problem with the religious system that Jeroboam put together. And he's trying to replace in terms of the worship of God down in Jerusalem. The big difference between what Jeroboam was doing and what was happening in Jerusalem is in Jerusalem, what they were doing is what God commanded them to do. There was a biblical basis for the worship down there. And what he is doing up here is not only is there no biblical basis for it, but it flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. So the big difference You can add bells, whistles, fireworks, laser shows, all you want to this thing, but it's never going to match what God was doing in Jerusalem because that's how he prescribed that he would be worshipped, not in this way. Now you think about things today. Think about how much has been introduced into Christianity. How much has been introduced into the body of Christ through the years through religious systems, some of which have been around for 2,000 years, through religious systems that established man-made traditions, even idolatry, and the supposed worship of, uh, according to Christianity, introduced all of these different kinds of things. It even lead people into idolatry, lead them into disobedience. The same kind of threat. We've got to make ourselves distinctive from everything else that's a part of the body of Christ so that we can get these people and then hold on to these people. It goes on all of the time. You look at some religious systems in the world today, again, around for 2,000 years, and you look at all of the incense and the garments and all of the veneration of Mary, and it's not just Roman Catholicism, but you look at it and you say, where in the world is that in the Bible? 
You said, don't pick on the Catholics. I get more heat for talking about Catholics than anything else in the history of 25 years here. I'm not saying that a person cannot be in the Catholic Church and be saved. They can be. But they will be saved despite the Roman Catholic Church and not because of it, at least in terms of their Vatican II, which teaches salvation is on the basis of faith in Christ and keeping the sacraments. And I've talked to so many Catholics through the years that had to get out of Roman Catholicism to even find out that they needed to be born again and that they could have a personal relationship with Christ and not a relationship with God through a religious system. So be, listen carefully to what I'm saying. I know there are people who love God, they respect God in some of these systems, but it's in spite of the system so often, and very often God has to bring them out to even get them saved. Just because something's been around for 2,000 years or 200 years or 20 years, you don't give it a pass. People's eternities are at stake on the basis of what God reveals in his word. We are not free to point people, God's people, to anyone or anything other than God Almighty himself. And we are not free to encumber. I could go on to talk about Orthodox churches too, and other, as well as well as some churches that are, uh, you know, in the storefront, just like how we started 25 years ago. And all kinds of crazy things are going on in, in some places like that occasionally. We are not free to encumber the worship of the Lord with our own ideas and take the eyes of people off of God and onto anything. It's serious business. The northern kingdom of Israel, those men, women, and children in 200 years, they're going to be slaughtered without number. They're going to be taken captive by the Assyrians. It is going to be a terrible, terrible time in their history, and it all comes back to what this man does in 1 Kings chapter 12. You can't introduce even the smallest amount of disobedience in God's people or the smallest amount of idolatry because what will it look like in five years or ten years or a hundred years or two hundred years? And what will become of the people that are in that system? So... I like to think that on Sunday nights, the audience is sophisticated enough to not take what I'm saying beyond what I'm saying, but to understand this is serious business. You shouldn't have to leave a religious system to find out that you can be born again and need to be born again and have a relationship with God that you could have with God as close to God if you were living on a deserted island as much as if you were living and enjoying that in a church of 10,000 people in the middle of a city that is known for its love for God. So here is this great temptation that occurs. 
that people that men do. And then pretty soon, just like what happens with Jeroboam here, after a while, it's like, well, why would we change that? We've always been doing this. We've always been doing this. We've always been doing this. Of course, it doesn't match with the law and the prophets say, but we've always done this. And then pretty soon these kind of religious activities get a pass by virtue of how long they've been around rather than what does the Bible say? And that's why. And I don't think that we're the greatest church in the world. I never, ever try to develop that in anybody's heart. But you take everything back to Christ. And you look at what he established a Christian life to be, what he established a Christian church, what it's supposed to be look, look like. You would go back to the Bible, back to the book of Acts, and that's how simple it's supposed to be and how simple it's going to be supposed to be kept. Now, it's very easy in a room like this because, uh, you know, to talk about institutions or, you know, big religious systems and all. But this thing comes right down to the individual person as well. You look at how often an individual will take. Now a walk with God is beginning to cost them something. There really is the denial of self. They have to take up their cross in order to follow after him. They think, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. There's things in the world that I want. And so what they begin to do then is they begin to put things above God in their lives. They begin to compromise God's word. It is no different than what Jeroboam is doing here. It's still disobedience. It's still idolatry. Until if a person is honest about their own life, they'll look and say, you know, as a matter of fact, in terms of as it relates to God, he isn't number one in my life. The fact of the matter is he's somewhere in there four, five, six or seven. And it's the same thing that Jeroboam is doing. And so the danger that it is even to us individually and the need to resist that kind of thing. And I'll tell you, the, the worst idolatry and the most unrecognized idolatry that exists in the world today and in the body of Christ today is the worship of self. The worship of self, where I elevate my we are we are a blood bought people. But now I elevate my will, my purposes for my life, my selfishness above God and above God's will for my life. That's idolatry. And it's the worst form of idolatry because it takes us into the worst forms of bondage. The smallest prison in the world is right inside our skin. And so this, but people do it all of the time. The priorities get changed. We begin to worship ourselves, worship material things and all, begin to compromise God's word. And then people are amazed that there's the crash and burn at the end of it. Well, there has to be because God loves us enough to bring us back to where we will put the priorities in the right place. And so this is the mess that Jeroboam makes. It's so unnecessary. And the price that's going to be paid is just terrible. And so he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month, which he had devised in his own heart. Here it is. You know, this man made religion and traditions heaped upon the simplicity of Christianity. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And so this is precisely what he uh, does here. And uh, God is going to come in because God is gracious and God is going to try and warn him now in order to get him to repent of, of his sin. 
Behold, a man of God went from Judah down in the south, which is, was more godly than the north. He went from Judah to Bethel, where one of these calves were, and he went there by the word of the Lord. God had directed him to do it. And when he gets there to Bethel, Jeroboam stood by the altar in order to burn incense. And so here he is. It's a very public setting. Important to recognize it's a very public setting. Here's the calf. Here's the altar. Here's the burning of the incense and all. And then the prophet cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And so he comes, and he comes to this very public kind of worship service, so to speak, and he prophesies uh, before everyone that is there. He prophesies concerning two things. Number one, concerning a man who would come and bring judgment to this altar that they were worshiping before. And then number two, he uh, uh, prophesied against the altar itself. This man's prophecy here in verse two is one of the most remarkable in Scripture because it predicted the name and the actions of a king who would not come on the scene, wouldn't even be born for 290 years. A king by the name of Josiah, who was one of the greatest kings the southern kingdom of Judah ever had. And just as was prophesied 290 years earlier, Josiah went up in the north in a great revival that he instituted at that time, went up into the north to the city of Bethel, And on this altar, he broke the altar that was used in the worship of these calves. And he took the bones of the priests out of the tombs that had led the men and women of Israel into this false worship. And he burned their very bones, their dead bones, on that altar. And all of it happened exactly as as the prophet had prophesied would occur. And so he gave that prophecy that, Uh, that this would be the case concerning this man by the name of Josiah and the judgment that would come. And then he gave a sign, verse 3, gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar that Jeroboam was standing before shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So here you got a guy kind of interrupts a pagan worship service. So there's a guy by the name of Josiah coming. And he's going to judge this altar and he's going to burn the bones of your prophets and your priests in this makeup religious system that you've got going on right here. And then he's quiet. Well, everybody thinks in their mind, how do we know it's true? It's 290 years away from being fulfilled. So very often what God would do is when he gave a prophecy of something that was going to occur in the distant future. He would then give another prophecy that would happen within minutes or within hours or within days so that when that occurred, they would realize that this prophecy that's been given way out is going to happen as well. And that's exactly what he did. Just so you know that this prophecy concerning Josiah is going to occur, this altar is going to be broken and the ashes are going to be poured out. 
So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, well, who couldn't have heard it? He, he cried out there, this great prophecy, who cried out against the altar of Bethel. This really obviously struck uh, Jeroboam's pride, and he's indignant. He's been uh, publicly humiliated here. So he stretched out his hand from the altar, and he gave the order, arrest him. And then his hand, which he stretched out toward the prophet, it withered, just paralyzed. So he couldn't pull it back to himself. And so here he is with this paralyzed arm that's stretched out uh, toward, uh, toward the prophet there, not able to, to bring it back in. Now, Jeroboam's reaction is a little different. God's wanting to see repentance and humility here. There's no repentance and humility. There's just ang angry, anger and defiance. So he couldn't pull his hand back to him. And then the altar, just as the prophet said, also was split apart. The ashes poured out on the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of God. And then the king answered, this is all public. And he said to the man of God before all the priests and all the people, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And so the man of God Feeling that he was safe at this point, he entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and came as before. Now, you have, what you have here is the, the term that I like best for it is you've got essentially a power encounter. And what God is doing is he is exposing the powerlessness of this whole man-made religious system of Jeroboam. If if. If Jeroboam, if these golden calves were as powerful as Jeroboam was giving them credit for in order to lead a whole nation into the worship of them, then why couldn't they protect him from getting his arm paralyzed? And why couldn't they restore the strength back to his arm? So basically, God is communicating to Jeroboam and he's communicating to all of the priests and the whole northern kingdom of Israel that what you got going on here is absolutely bogus. I'm the true and the living God and you ought to come back to worshiping me. This is why later on God is going to judge Jeroboam and his household. But he is also going to judge the children of Israel for continuing in the worship of the golden calves because he had done this and other things in order to make them realize that all of this is wrong and it has God's judgment written upon it. Because the prophet had said this whole thing is going to be judged by Josiah. And so here you've got this thing where God comes in and it's not just a miracle that he does here in the withering of the hand and restoring the hand. It's a miracle with a message. This is all nonsense that you're involved in. This God that you're worshiping can't even not only can it not keep you as a people, keep you as a nation. It can't even unwither the single hand of one person in the kingdom. You better come back to me. And they don't heed uh, the, the message at all. But God is still trying to get through to them. And then the king said, when his arm was restored to him, he said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. So he goes into a political mode. I'm not saying all politicians are bad, but they really know how to work a situation. They know how to do damage control and begin to spin something a little differently than what it is. So he's been publicly um, rebuked and exposed by God here now. 
And so the best way that he can uh, do to undo the damage here a little bit is to invite the prophet to his house to have a meal. It was a big deal for people to eat together in those days. It would kind of represented friendship and mutual respect and this kind of thing. So he invites him to the palace, uh, which is a big deal, to have a meal in order for the people to think, well, you know, God can't be too angry with him. I mean, the prophet went home to lunch with him. And uh, so this was the invitation uh, that was given. But the son of God, uh, the, the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, again, this is public, I wouldn't go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. He refuses the meal. I don't want to represent God as having wanting to have any kind of fellowship with you in your unrepentant condition because he was a representative of God. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord when I was coming here, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way that you came. So God knew this offer was going to be extended to him. said, Don't take him up on it when he did it, does it. And so he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, an old man dwelt in Bethel. Well, he's an old prophet. So uh, he was dwelling there in Bethel and uh, can't really be much of a prophet because he kind of just sitting quietly while all of this idolatry is going on in the city that he's living in. So he's at home. At least he's not over there engaged in the worship of of the golden calves. But his sins, his sons had gone to the service and his sons came and they told him all the works of the man that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. All that this young prophet had said, all that he had done. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. This appears to kind of stir something up with some conviction or maybe an old memory of what it used to be like when he was, you know, spoke for God. But it stirs something within him. And the father said to them, which way did he go? And for his sons had seen the way which the man of God went who came from Judah. And so they directed him in the direction. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it, uh, you know, out of curiosity to meet this man and maybe for some fellowship. They went after the man of God and he found him sitting under an oak. And then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. So a nice invitation for fellowship. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord that you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way that you have come. So he's got God's word in his heart. He's holding firm to it at that point. And then the old prophet said to him, I, too, am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. And this old prophet was lying to him. Now, something fascinating here and and very important for us to understand um, in in our Christian uh, life. We're told that this prophet here just out and out fabricated a prophecy and, and lied to this young prophet. And the reason I 
make some mention of it this evening is I absolutely believe in the supernatural of the Christian life. I love the word of God. I love that God stands behind his word. I love what it speaks about. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. I believe he does miracles. I believe he speaks. I believe in prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues, the whole kit and caboodle. I don't see any reason why any of it should be dispensationalized. And when I became a Christian, I mean, I just absolutely fell in love with the Word of God and the God of the Word. I could not study it enough. I couldn't read it enough. I couldn't learn it enough. You ask my wife. I come home from work, had a little desk in the back bedroom, go straight in the door to the back there and just about read until it was time to go to bed. Harry Ironside's commentaries, Campbell Morgan, anything I could get my hands on. But I also experienced very early in my Christian life the supernatural behind the word of God. Afterglows, what it meant to be led by the Holy Spirit, to hear his voice, at least to think you heard it and then to watch it unfold. That whole dynamic of the Christian life to see prayer be answered, these kinds of things. And so I believe in that. We believe in that as a church. But there's. Because we believe in the supernatural of the Christian life, we also have to be aware that there need to be safeguards in our life to test the supernatural that occurs within a local body. Because God isn't the only one who does the supernatural in the world. The devil does miracles. The devil does signs. He has tremendous power. So how do we differentiate between what is the devil doing, what is somebody saying, but really isn't supernatural? It's just like a circus trick or a magician trick has no basis in reality or what's really happening from God here so that we can handle the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but handle them safely. I think it's important to understand, number one, that lying prophets do exist. I don't walk around thinking to my, as soon as somebody exercises the gift of prophecy, my first thought is they're a liar, just a lying prophet. I believe in the gift of prophecy and the importance of it. I've benefited from the gift as God's expressed it through other people. But I do realize, and you need to realize too, that there are, there are people who give prophecies and they're lying. It comes from them. They make those things up. So when a person comes to us and says, thus saith the Lord, or God told me, or worse yet, God told me to tell you, we don't drop our discernment at that point in time and say everything that's prefaced by God told me and God told me to tell you that I now have to believe. I listen to what it is that they have to say and then I begin to test it to see whether I'm going to accept that as a true prophecy or not from God. So there needs to be discernment, there needs to be testing, there needs to be uh, judgment. The Bible says test all things and hold fast To that which is good concerning spiritual gifts, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, let two or three prophets speak and then let the others judge. There was the recognition there can be false prophecy and we need the discerning of spirits to be able to recognize that. 
And so, number one, to realize that lying prophets do exist, but it should never turn us away from the supernatural of the Christian life in any gift. If you've, if you've had a bad experience with spiritual gifts, then you just have to chalk that up to a learning experience, but you can't throw the gifts away. I remember a, a pastor friend of mine um, was raised all through his childhood in Pentecostal circles. And what I'm going to say right now, I'm not saying characterizes all Pentecostals or all Pentecostal churches, but it characterized the church that he grew up in. There was such an emphasis on the gift of tongues, such an overemphasis upon it. One day he said to me, he said, he said, Damien, he said, um, he said, if I never heard the gift of tongues again, it would be too soon. And he had allowed himself to become jaded against the gift. And I understand why that happens concerning that gift and other gifts. We've got to take a step back and say these things are not dangerous to us. They can't be forced upon us as long as we handle them in a biblical way. The second thing that we need to the mistake that this young prophet makes, and he's going to cost him his life, is we must never elevate the message of an angel above the word of God. So much of Mormonism, the angel Moroni and the revelation that came from him. You look at Mormonism where you've got uh, uh, four so-called holy books. You've got Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. You've got the Bible. And then um, what's the other one? What is the Book of Mormon, of course. Very good. I got all the hard ones in double jeopardy, but I missed the easy one. But you take what, what they do and the mistake that they make is that they take those three books that they've added to the Bible and they test the Bible by that, that revelation rather than testing the later revelation by the earlier revelation of the Bible. And, and so Paul wrote, and, and to the church at Galatia related to this whole thing, Galatians 1.8, he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, other than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So let me ask you this. You're in your bedroom getting ready to go to bed. An angel appears in your bedroom. Ah, amazing the beauty and all. Fallen angel to be sure. But amazing angel appears there and then proceeds as you see all of the glory, all the supernaturalness of it, I mean, you're completely undone as you see it, proceeds to give you a word from God that violates just one half of one verse in the Bible, what are you going to stand on? The supernatural experience that just happened to you? There'll be a great temptation to give it Great weight because it's a supernatural event. But one half of one verse in the Bible, if it's contrary to the message that's been given, then you just throw the whole other thing out. And so here he comes with a message that he said, I got from an angel. But this guy had a message from God already. The application for us is we've got the Bible. We test any supernatural revelation by the word of God, because that's unmistakable. We can never go wrong with that. 
Now, another lesson that is important to learn here is always test the newer revelation from God, whether it's a prophecy or whatever it is, by the older revelation, the confirmed revelation, never the other way around. Again, this is the mistake, as I said, that Mormonism makes. The Bible is the older revelation to those books. You never test the Bible by the later revelation because God does not change his mind. It's called the immutability of God. So if he's going to give a subsequent revelation, that subsequent revelation will never violate an earlier revelation. That's why everything has to be tested by the word of God. You say, this is why spend all this time on it? How many people are in the Mormon church? Do you know that the largest group of people that join the Mormon church on an annual basis come from a church background where they were supposed to be steeped in the Bible and taught the Bible? That they, don't, they don't just get people off of the street or just anybody's. It is people that have been raised in Christian churches that they're most effective in getting a hold of because they flip this whole thing around. Take the religion of Islam. Comes on the scene in the 7th century, 600 and something A.D., 600 plus years after the time of Christ, thousands of years after the time of Abraham and Noah and the revelation, Moses, the revelation of the Old Testament. And they come along and the Quran declares that when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah to offer his son as a sacrifice, he didn't take Isaac, but he took Ishmael. Here you have a revelation in 600 plus A.D. that if we test it by the earlier revelation of the book of Genesis thousands of years earlier, you look at it and say, the Bible says he took Isaac up, uh, up on, on Mount Moriah in order to offer him as a sacrifice, which ultimately he didn't end up doing. He didn't take Ishmael. The Bible is clear. In one, on one issue, you just jettison as nonsense and as false the entire religion of Islam because it claims to have biblical roots. It claims to have Old Testament roots, New Testament roots, but it violates this principle. It, you go to the um, Dome of the Rock Mosque in, in uh, Jerusalem today, up on the Temple Mount, and in Arabic, all around that Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's one reason I've never walked inside of the mosque. I don't put you down if, you, if you've walked inside of it. But all... All the way around it says, God does not beget, nor is he begotten. That's a slam against my Savior. But here you have a religious system, 600 plus years after the time of Jesus, that is violating the clear teaching of the New Testament. You can't have it both ways. It fails the test of the earlier revelation, which is the scriptures. And that goes for any prophets or prophecies that you might see on TV or in a home fellowship or anywhere. Always hold on to that principle and you'll be safe. One of the great things about the New Testament is it absolutely claims and is built upon the Old Testament, but it doesn't violate the revelation of the Old Testament. It is they are one and the same.
They're wed together in terms of what they communicate concerning Christ. And so it's very, very important so that we don't get seduced in all of this. I think um, one other thing, and this is just huge related to all of this. This young prophet very, very naively forgot that God never, ever cancels his his words to his people or a prophecy or a word that he had given to him. Don't stick around. Don't eat here. Leave another way. God never changes his mind concerning a personal prophecy or piece of instruction that he has given to us. He never changes that without informing us of that. Never, ever, ever make a decision that violates the word of God or violates some known revelation that God has given to you that is given you by some other person. If God has spoken something to me and I believe that it has come from him, then if somebody comes to me and says, God told me to tell you this, if what that person is saying to me does, is not something that God has already spoken to my heart and their word is a confirmation, then I'm not going to change my life or my decision making. I'm not going to quit my job here and move to Toledo because they said to when God has told me I'm supposed to be here. And so you never, ever make a major or even a small decision in life based upon a word God has come, given to someone else. That word should always be a confirmation of something God has already spoken to you or that word gets planted in your heart. You take it to the Lord in prayer and then he confirms with you privately that that is or isn't of him. And the, the, the man didn't do this again. There are so many people, so many Christians that are pulled in so many different directions in Christian churches so often because of these words that are given to them and their lives end up becoming a casualty as a result. And so he makes several mistakes here in this and mistakes that we want to learn for our, ourselves so we don't make those same mistakes. So he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and he drank water. Now, it happened as if they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, the older prophet. And he cried out to the man of God. They're sitting there just having some bread and water and some salami or whatever. Maybe not salami, but anyway, they're sitting there and they're eating and he begins to prophesy. And now he gets a real prophecy. And he said, thus says the Lord. Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, you ate bread, drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. The guy prophesies, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're a dead man. I'm looking at a dead man. Prophesies concerning him. Now you think to yourself, wow. I mean, here's this guy. He's the liar. He's the false prophet. He's going to cost this young prophet his life. By the way, the Bible talks about causing even the youngest little of, of his to, to, to stumble. It'd be better for that, that person to have a, a, a yoke put around their neck and to be thrown in the deepest sea. 
So he gets away. I mean, he doesn't get any consequences here. And, and he gets to have the prophecy that is used to condemn. And I think the Lord's doing a couple of things here. Number one, I think that older prophet feels ashamed of himself when he declares this. He knows that he drew this man into this judgment. And God made that older prophet declare this prophecy over the young man. Only this time it was true. I don't doubt that it shamed him for the rest of his life. And so it was after the young man had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey, uh, that he, uh, the older man they have eaten and drunk, he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, the young prophet goes on his way. A lion met him on the road and killed him. Now, earlier there in, in verse 22, when part of the prophecy was your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. In other words, uh, you're going to you're not going to make it back. Uh, to Judah. You're not going to make it back to your hometown. You're not going to have a proper burial because you're going to die a violent death. That's basically what was being communicated. So he goes, a lion meets him on the road and the lion killed him. And his corpse was thrown, just laying right out there in the middle of the road. And the donkey that he was riding on stood by it and the lion stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and they saw the corpse thrown in the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Very, very unusual. More than unusual, very, very unnatural. Because if a lion kills a man, the natural instinct of the lion is to then eat the man. If he doesn't eat the man, then surely he's going to attack the donkey who's just standing there, but he doesn't attack the donkey. The donkey, if everything was operating in the way of nature... The second the master was taken and killed would run as far as it can away from the lion. Everything's unnatural about the scene. And the reason the lion doesn't kill the donkey and the donkey doesn't run away from the lion is because God is communicating in this whole situation that's what's happened here is absolutely supernatural. This is my work. This is my judgment on the young prophet. And then they went and they told it in the city where the old prophet dwelled. They gave him the news. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, is the man of God who was disobedient to it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. And therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled it. And then he went and he found his corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. And the lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And so the old man came to the city to mourn and to bury him. There's genuine sorry, sorrow over, in him over what he had done. And he laid the corpse in his own tomb. And he mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. You lay my bones right beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against this altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places 
all of this man-made religion, which are in the cities of Samaria, it will surely come to pass. Jeroboam's religious system is doomed. Make my future with this prophet and what it is that he has said. And after this event, Jeroboam, far from bringing him to repentance, though God is trying to bring him to that place, he didn't turn from his evil way, which makes him all the more responsible for the judgment that's coming his way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places, his friends and highest bidder and whoever, whatever his deal was, he just made anyone and everyone a priest for these high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he himself became one of the priests of the high places as well. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. God said, I am going to not only destroy him, I'm going to destroy his name. And Jeroboam, it's interesting, when we read through this, his name is famous for a phrase that will be repeated over and over again. He's known as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused all of Israel to sin through his disobedience and through his idolatry. He led them, the nation, into sin and into its own uh, judgment. And so here is Solomon introduces idolatry into the southern kingdom of Judah and sets the clock ticking for its own destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. And when God took the southern kingdom of Judah into uh, captivity with the Babylonians, the, the land was so full of idolatry and essentially God was saying to them, listen, you like idolatry? You want idolatry? I'll show you idolatry. I'll take you to a land where they've got idols coming out of their noses. I'll take you to Babylon. And they were absolutely surrounded by idolatry for 70 years. And that experience cured the children of Israel of their idolatry when they returned to the land. So Solomon took and he, he sows the seeds for the destruction of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And Jeroboam, both of them warned ahead of time not to do it by God. And Jeroboam does the same thing, disobedience, idolatry, modeled before the people, people encouraged to engage in it, and it would be the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Such important, important lessons. And because there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is the same, the same temptations that we face today. And uh, 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 history just keeps on repeating itself. So important lessons for us tonight in our own personal walk with the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you came into this building tonight, maybe you didn't even know it was a church. You said, I think looks like they might have the air conditioning on. And you wandered in. Or maybe you're just in the search for the meaning of life. And you thought, I'll go try that church that looks like a prison over there on Pellendale. See what it looks like on the inside and what they're doing inside of there. And you come in in your search for God. And here's what I want you to know. You don't get into heaven by listening to a Bible study. You get into heaven by you personally putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins.